It's great to worship the great I am, Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one who has always been and always will be, the holy God and Jesus Christ as the God incarnate that we worship and honor and the Holy Spirit who is also God himself. We come before all of them and we worship and give them praise. And so again, it's good to be worshiping together with you. One of the things that we do on Sunday morning along with worship through music is to worship through the Word of God. This morning we're continuing a series on the Chronicles of the Kings, and uh, we're looking at the various kings that are found in the Old Testament. And today the theme is healing the great divide. And it's interesting, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but on Friday we inaugurated a new president here in the United States of America. And uh, it's created quite an interesting dialogue that takes place in a variety of setting, settings across our country on Fridays, yesterday, and I'm sure that'll continue in some form or fashion. I was intrigued, though, as I thinking about the divide, uh, I want to show you a little video of someone that really caught my attention. I don't know if you know the name Ernie Johnson. Ernie Johnson is a um, big-time TV commentator on sports. If you watch NBA on TNT or TBS, or you watch CBS and some of the basketball games and the, and the uh, tournaments that take place there, you have probably have seen Ernie Johnson there. And uh, Ernie is a Christ follower, and uh, he talked a little bit about uh, Donald Trump and the elections, and I appreciated some of the things that he had to say, and just as a setup for the message, just take a little look and listen to Ernie Johnson as he speaks on live national TV. I've got kind of a three-part take on this after, after watching what we all watched on, on Tuesday. Number one, um, when this campaign season started, I, I felt like I'd been dealt a bad hand. Um, I had these couple of choices. And there were trust issues with Hillary Clinton I couldn't get past. And there was this inflammatory rhetoric from Donald Trump, which to me was incomprehensible and indefensible. I couldn't vote for either one. For the first time in going to the polls for 42 years, I hit the write-in button. And I voted for John Kasich. And I left knowing that John Kasich wasn't going to win. But I left with a clear conscience because I hadn't settled. Number two, I'm hopeful. I watched the video today of CNN on what was going on at the White House with Donald Trump, President Obama. I was hopeful and I was encouraged that there will be a difference between the President Trump and the campaigning Trump. And I'm with these guys. We have to give them a chance. But here's the deal. I just hope that he's all in, in, uh, in fixing the wounds in this country and the divides that separate this country. And I want to be part of that, too. And for me to be part of it, I have to look in the mirror and I have to say, how am I going to be a better man? How am I going to be a better neighbor? How am I going to be a better citizen? How am I going to be a better American? How can I be a fountain and not a drain? And number three, I know you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion, but we're already talking about politics. and. So I'm going to go the R direction, too. I never know from one election to the next who's going to be in the Oval Office. But I always know who's on the throne. And I'm on this earth because God created me. And that's who I answer to. I'm a Christian. I follow this guy named Jesus. You might have heard of him. And the greatest commandment he gave me was to love others. And Scripture also tells us to pray for our leaders. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for Donald Trump. I'm going to pray for all those people right now who feel like they're on the outside looking in, who are afraid at this point. Pray for them, too. In short, I'm praying for America. And I'm praying that one day we're going to look back and we're going to say, you know what? That Donald Trump presidency, 
I was all right. But I'm praying. TV. That was exciting to people that have the courage to really speak their convictions and to do it in a way that honors the Lord, that loves people, and that keeps that central focus that God is still on the throne and is not afraid to name the name Jesus uh, besides. And I, I love his heart. I love his message in the sense of healing the great divide. That's where we want to go. That's what I'm going to camp on. I'm not here to talk about Trump or Hillary or any of that stuff, but I want to focus on what God counts as most important because leaders come and go, but the emphasis of God's control and God's work is what is most important. And we begin this uh, message around the great divide. You have an outline that's on your, in your bulletin, and you're going to be needing that as we go through it here this morning. I wanted to show you at the very top of the outline, talking about this divide of these kings that are there, I threw in this wonderful verse that is uh, easy to overlook, right under the title of Healing the Great Divide is Romans 15.4. I don't have it on the screen, but I want to read it as you have it hopefully in your hand. Why do we study the Old Testament? Why do we look at the Chronicles of the Kings? Well, Paul writes in Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in earlier times, which is what the Old Testament is, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. And so as we study Old Testament passages that may seem obscure, names that we can't pronounce, areas of the world we don't know where they are, and these obscure and crazy little things that happen to these people, these kings, they are all there for a purpose. They are there to give to us instruction. They are there to give us guidance. They are there to give us hope. And so we're going to go into this passage, and I'm going to give you a little historical backdrop on the kings that we want to talk about. Then I'm going to show you what I believe are some lessons that come from that that are as relevant for us today as they were about 3,000 years ago when all that occurred. You can see on the outline that is uh, there at the very bottom, I have it on the screen, that we had three kings that were the United Kingdom of Israel. Uh, of course, was Saul, David, and Solomon. And then following Solomon, the kingdom divided. And I'll show you why that occurred. But this morning, we're going to be talking about Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And there's Jeroboam the first because there's another Jeroboam that follows him a little bit later on. And these are the two kings we want to talk about. But let me show you the great divide that occurred. When Solomon was ruling, the country of Israel could not have been more prosperous. Uh, they were just uh, overwhelmed with lots of land territory, lots of wealth, lots of gold. You know, the Queen of Sheba came. I was just amazed at this beautiful temple that Solomon had built. And so he got this beautiful palace that Solomon lived in that David would build. And then Solomon came along and built the temple, this magnificent temple that people from all around the world would want to come and just ooh and awe of this place of worshiping Yahweh God, the great I Am that we just sang about. And so in Solomon's day, there was great prosperity and unity of the nation. And then sin entered in, and Solomon's kingdom was divided in two. If you look at it, almost literally, it is two halves of the once whole. And this is the challenge that uh, happens when sin comes to a heart. 
and I don't try to be clever about this, but it's interesting because last Sunday we talked about how Solomon ruled with a half a heart. That half a heart actually literally cut the country into halves of two pieces. And that's what happens. It happens in marriages. It happens in relationships. It happens in businesses. And so these are the kinds of divides that we want God to speak to through these stories of the Old Testament. Now, what happened with Solomon is this. He was a great and wise God, wise man who ruled well, but he would not always practice the truth he knew. So the Scriptures tell us in 1 Kings 11, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 11, 12, and 13 to 14, but in that text he says, Now the Lord God was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, trying to encourage his heart to do the right thing, and had commanded him concerning the thing that he should not go after other gods. I talked about last week that Solomon had 700 wives, which is an amazing phenomenon. Then he had 300 concubines. Can you imagine sitting down and you're there to provide counsel to Solomon and Solomon comes in and says, you know, life's not going very well. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I have 700 wives. <laughs> Where do you begin with that? And so this is the challenge of Solomon. And all those wives turned his heart away from the Lord, it says. The wives that came from other countries that were part of political unions that were being created, they came in with their own little g-gods. And Solomon got caught up in the other little g-gods and not Yahweh God, the great I Am that we just sang about. And what's interesting to me on this Sanctity of Life Sunday are two of the gods that they began to worship, that Solomon began to worship. One was Ashtoreth. You'll see that name mentioned there in 1 Kings 11. Ashtoreth was the god or the goddess of sex. In those days, sexual promiscuity was very prominent. In fact, you will see that Rehoboam actually had cult prostitutes that came as part of the acts of worship. And then secondly, there was the goddess or the god of Molech. The god of Molech was this god where they would bring human sacrifices. They would sacrifice babies to this god. And it's not lost on me that in our world today, we don't call them Ashtoreth and Molech, but we see their effects. Because we live in a world where sexual activity should not have any constraint. doesn't matter how and who and where and when, as long as it's consensual. That's our one constraint, I guess. And then secondly, we live in a world where Babies are being lost, unborn babies. We care as much for the mother of the unwanted pregnancy as we do for the baby. And we're willing to put our money and our time to help those moms that are struggling with an unwanted child. Joy and I have literally done that. We encourage you to do that, and we will continue to do that. But I don't want us as a church, because there are churches that have surrendered to the proverbial goddess of Ashtoreth and Molech by not standing up for what Yahweh God has said about those practices of sex and babies. And so we need to be very careful, because we could become just like Solomon, where he surrendered his values to the values of a world 
that looked at the world around us more like Molech and Asherah did than what biblical Christianity and holiness should teach us to do. So just a little fair warning. Solomon had that half a heart that was buying into the values of the world that did not believe in the biblical values that God had given to them. And as a result, God says, okay, I'm going to divide your kingdom up. And when he divided up the kingdom, there became two kings. One king was Jeroboam. Jeroboam, I've listed on here, and we don't have time to go into all the details of Jeroboam's life, but let me just show you. This is sort of the, I put on here the bullets. This is sort of the cliff notes of 1 Kings 11, 12, and 14. But here are some of the facts about Jeroboam. He became the king of the ten northern tribes. The ten northern tribes are often referred to as Israel as you read the Bible. Sometimes you will see the ten northern tribes of Israel referred to as Ephraim, which is one of the tribes. It's the biggest tribe. It's the, it's the predominant tribe. And so sometimes it would get that reference as well. So when you see Israel from this time forward, it's talking about the ten northern tribes. And so he became this valiant warrior that was supporting Solomon. Solomon loved him, so he began to give him higher, posi higher positions as well. And then he has promised the ten northern tribes. There's an unusual event that occurred when the uh, uh, man came to him and says, we're going to tear up this kingdom. And he takes a brand new coat and he cuts it up into 12 pieces. And God is saying through this man with this brand new coat that cuts up in 12 pieces, I'm going to cut this nation into 12 pieces. Ten in the north, two in the south, Judah and Benjamin in the south. And so he has given that, and he's promised a great kingdom if he would just walk with the Lord in 1 Kings eleven thirty eight, God says, you're not part of the lineage of kingdom. You don't have royal blood, but you're a valiant warrior, and I'm going to give you a chance. You can rule these ten northern kingdoms. You can rule all these ten northern tribes, and I'll bless you if you walk with me. Well, he did not. He led the people in a false worship, and you read about that in 1 Kings 12. He actually said, I don't want people to go from the ten northern tribes because Jerusalem is in Judah, the southern tribe. He says, I don't want them to go from the ten northern tribes down to the southern tribe in, Ju in Jerusalem to worship in this beautiful temple that Solomon has built because if they go there, they may be captured by Jerusalem and they won't have allegiance to me in the ten northern tribes. So what does he do? He builds two places of worship, one way up in Dan and another place as well. And he has these two golden calves that he creates there for them to come and worship the golden calves. And he creates these false priests who don't know a clue. They don't have a clue of what God says in his word. And he has these phony, fake festivals that are supposedly to be celebrating who God is and they have nothing to do with God himself. So he creates this false religious system. And the people are persuaded to move away from Yahweh God as he creates this terrible system of the world. And God warns him about that. He tells him, if you don't turn your heart back, I will do destructive things to you. And then he prophesies, I'm going to read this text a little bit, about a king, a good king by the name of Josiah. Because Josiah will come and he will take your place. And that was 290 years before Josiah was even born. So it's an amazing thing. I want to show you that in Scripture in a moment. He then does not uh, alter his behavior with God's warnings. His son becomes ill. He wants his son to be healed. That's some interesting. Here's a man that does not walk with God, but when his son became sick, he says, I'm going to need to go to God's people. And God says, no, no, you, it, it's, it's over. Jeroboam then dies. So that's Jeroboam, then Rehoboam. Rehoboam is one of the sons of Solomon. He has the royal blood. 
and Rehoboam is uh, going to rule over the two southern tribes, referred to as Judah, but Judah also includes Benjamin, but Judah is the larger of the two. And he's warned by God, don't attack Israel because they were warring. They were constantly warring. Jeroboam and Rehoboam were warring against each other constantly. And he had a very evil rule of idolatry and cult prostitutes. He had this attack by this king of Egypt, I'll talk about it in a moment, and they become slaves to that king of Egypt. So let me take you into this journey. That's a little background of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, but here is what Romans 15, uh, 4 wants us to learn. And these are some observations that I make that based upon what I've read through. I've read through these chapters, 11, 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Kings, and these are the things that come to my mind. You will find other things as well. And the question is, why? Why do we have to get into all this detail that seems so distant from helping me with my marriage, helping me with my finances, helping me with my depression? These are all real things we're dealing with, but this morning we want to talk about helping us with our divides. Whether it's a divide between a marriage, a divide between a parent and a child, a divide in a country like ours, we're very divided today. These are things that helps to unite those who are divided from us. The first thing that I noticed that uh, we can take as a take-home from this particular passage is this, that we need to unify and live by the foundational truths of God's Word of the whole heart, and that's not, a, that's not something, well, I've never thought about that before. That's something that is uh, obviously should be on the hearts of all of us who would come to a service like this. And some of the things that God reinforces that truth with, that we go to the Scriptures and we find this is what God has said, are these things. We need to learn like from Solomon, where Solomon is being stressed out by God. His half-heartedness is on display. So what does God do to bring from have a half-heart to a whole heart, although he never got there? He brings stressors on Solomon. Notice these texts in 11.14. In 1 Kings 11.14, then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, he was of the royal line of Edom. Edom comes out of Esau, Jacob and Esau. Well, way back, I won't go into it, but King David really took to task the Edomites, and so Hadad has a grudge against anybody who is a follower of David. And so he had been, begins to attack Solomon. And then you read over in verses 23 and 24 these words. God also raised up another adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Eliadah, who had fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band after David slew them of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. Now, obviously, there's names, there's confusing names. We don't know exactly what he's talking about there, but here is the point that I think is a takeaway from this at this point. God wants to unite us with a whole heart around the biblical truth that he has given to us, and today there is great attacks to the biblical truth, the veracity of Scripture, and the fidelity that we would have to be a committed student and one who practices that biblical truth. That is under assault. What God sometimes loves to do is to unite us, to bring us back, is that he brings stress points. He brings these stress points of these adversaries that came to Solomon. Because when things are going well, 
don't know about you, but I can begin to think, I'm not so needy of my God. I've got it handled, Lord. But when stress comes in, when problems occur, when there's an erosion of the world that we want it to be, it kind of has a way of turning us back to the Lord. I love this quote of George Mueller. He's one of the great saints of God from another generation. He says, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand as a means and say, and I say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeat are the very food of faith. God uses those things that none of us wants, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats, to bring us to our knees, to trust in an almighty God, the great I am, and say, okay, you got my attention. I'm coming back. I'm going to come with a whole heart. I want to have an allegiance to you and what your scriptures teach me. I want to live by them. The second thing that I noticed that uh, unifies our hearts before the Lord is this. We need to learn from the value of the righteous life which God loves to bless us with. When you live a righteous life, God does something amazing. In 1 Kings eleven thirty eight, we read these words. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, he says to Jeroboam, as my servant David did, then I will be with you, build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So what God is saying is, I'm not trying to yank things to make it work here today, but there is a biblical principle that when I live according to what are his statutes and his commandments, I will be with you and build you an enduring house. I will bless your life. Now, I'm not into the health, wealth, prosperity, and that's not what I'm talking about, because sometimes God's blessing is hard. But one thing that we need to have an adherence to is this that there is something very noble and valuable and beneficial to a life that has an allegiance to a biblical Christianity where I abide by the statutes and the commandments of God. That's what God is inviting us into, that there's no shame in that. It's interesting, I had this uh, uh, interview a few weeks ago with uh, a writer from the Orange County Register. It was the old motorcycle picture in Sandswick Chapel that some of you uh, sort of liked. Some of you didn't. Um, as we were talking off the record, and I think it's okay to say this because it's public knowledge, we were talking about gay marriage and, and marriage as we see it in Scripture and so forth and so on. I said, you know, I, I don't really preach against gay marriage. I preach for what the Bible teaches about marriage. I said to him, I preach what God says about marriage. Ephesians 5, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. That's what we preach here. We're pro-marriage. We love marriage. We love marriage that loves spouses. We think they're good things. We think scriptures tell us these things because they're good things, and they're good for us. He says, yeah, okay, I get that. 
said, for example, I said, divorce. When you go through a divorce, it's painful and it's costly. He says, oh man, you got that right. I just went through a divorce. I said, well, how was that for you? He says, not so good. It was painful and it was costly. And then I said, well, that's the point. You see, when God gives us these ideals that are sometimes very hard and not all of us achieve them, I get that. But God's grace is always there. But that's why we strive for them. That's why we don't lower the bar. And so when we preach on marriage, we preach God as a husband, let me love my wife as Christ loves the church, and as a wife, let me honor and respect him as the church should respect and honor Jesus Christ. And so we don't shrink from that value because not everybody is able to achieve it, and some of you have not achieved it, and, but God's grace backfills that. But yet we don't back away from that because when we learn the value of a righteous life, we realize there are good things that come out of that because when we do things like divorce, bad things come out of that, painful things come out of that. And we want to help everybody avoid that because no one wants you to have to suffer from that. One of the things that I appreciate about Ernie Johnson that you just saw on the screen, that uh, Ernie Johnson's a follower of Jesus as you heard him, and he backs it up by living a righteous life. He and his wife have adopted other children, and one day his wife called him and says, I've got a little boy here that we could bring home and make us our own. And Ernie says, oh, yeah, tell me about him. Well, he has a club foot, and he's got other physical disabilities in him. Should I bring him home? And Ernie says, absolutely, bring him home. He needs a good home. So they brought that little guy home, and all of his life he has been disabled. Michael was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, and now he's 26 years old. He's attached, attached to a ventilator and uses a wheelchair. And yet through his care has been extensive and expensive. Ernie and Cheryl Johnson have not shrunk from the challenge. And here's what Ernie says about his commitment to biblical fidelity, to the value that every life is important. Some people can be driven to be going on mission trips, digging wells for kids who don't have water. Everybody's wired differently. This is one of the ways we're wired. We have this heart for adoption. It's rooted in our faith, our Christian faith. We're instructed to care for orphans and widows. We don't want credit. We don't want pats on the back. We're getting a heck of a lot more out of it than they are. There's a return on the investment to biblical Christianity. And sometimes that reward is simply the joy of fulfilling what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has called us into. That's fidelity to Scripture. That's the value of the righteous life. That's what God calls us, invites us into. And that's why we come back to that, and it heals the divide when people see that, that kind of commitment to the orphan, to the disabled. And then also we have to learn the biblical Christianity that is allegiance to God's Word from this, from the council of godly leaders. I love this in 1 Kings 12. Rehoboam has just been in, placed in charge. He's never been a king before. He didn't really quite know what he's doing. But Rehoboam, it's kind of interesting, as he was installed as king, uh, he has a group of people that came to him. He says, you know, Solomon, 
we didn't like the way he taxed us. We'd like for you to lower the taxes. <laughs> now, he didn't even have to campaign on that. He didn't have to make a lie. They don't like the taxes, and they don't like the structure. And the king says, okay, well, let me think about it. So he says in verse 5, 1 Kings 12, 5, depart for three days, then return to me. So he departed. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer these people? So he goes to the older men who are part of David's uh, cohorts. What should I do? Verse 7, then they spoke to him, saying, if you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition, lower taxes, take off the constraints, if you will do that and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. They will love you for that. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him. It consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, what counsel do you give that we may answer these people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father had put on us? And the young men who grew up with him spoke to him and says, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us and you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins wherein my father loaded you with heavy yoke. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips but I would discipline you with scorpions. And he shunned the advice of the elders, and he went with the advice of the young men. Now, this is not a practical lesson that old people have got it right, but the young people got it wrong. Although he did not take the counsel of the elders, he just went with the counsel of the young people that he grew up with, his peers. And his young people told him to brutalize the people with your leadership, and the older men says, no, lighten the load. The thing that strikes me about that is that it's real easy to look at someone, size them up by age, and reach a conclusion that they don't know what they're talking about. Because this thing is divided up by age. The old men didn't know what they're saying. The young men, they've got it right. And we can be very easily misled by the age of a person as to whether what they're saying is true or not. And us, we need to listen to the counsel of everybody that comes to us, but those that have walked with the Lord longer often have better insights. We encourage you, if you're a godly elder or woman or man, either way, to be parting to impart that kind of wisdom to the younger generation. I've said all along that as a church, we need to grow younger. And we need to have elderly people, elderly in the sense of walking with the Lord a long time, who pass on truth. We don't always get the response we want. I know that I feel that way, Joy feels that way. We're battling with that now. We want the younger people to listen, but we don't shy away because we think they look at us and we don't know what we're talking about because we're old. We need to pass that on. We need to capture that wisdom. We need to have God's hand blessing that. And that's part of what Rehoboam lost simply because they're old. They're followers of King David and Solomon. So therefore, they must not know what they're talking about. There is a heritage of wisdom that God stores up for those who are willing to listen. 
So biblical truth that brings about unity. Secondly, trusting God's power to control what you cannot control. There's a lot of people out there that we would love to tell them what to do, but they don't listen to us. But I want to show you what God loves to do with people who are in rebellion against him. In 1 Kings 13, there's an amazing set of circumstances that occur. In 1 Kings 13, here are some of the things that you see on your outline. Let me read through 1 Kings 13. It says, Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And he cried out against the altar of the Lord, of the word of the Lord, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you and human bones will be burned on you. First miracle God gives to Jeroboam to turn his heart back. God says to Jeroboam this amazing truth that Josiah, King Josiah, will come and he will rule over where you're standing today. Now King Josiah did rule. We're going to talk about Josiah in a few weeks. But this prophecy of 1 Kings 13, 2 was 290 years before anybody knew about Josiah. This is God's miracle. He comes to Jeroboam, and Jeroboam doesn't know whether this is true or not, but God gave this miracle so you and I can look at that. If we're a student of God's Word, we look into God's Word, we say, wait a second, is that true? Was there a King Josiah? Did he come as a righteous man? Did he come out of the house of David? And sure enough, there was a King Josiah, and he came and he ruled. And what God is doing here is this, miracle number one. He says, look, you've got situations that you're out of control. You can't control it. You want to see God's will be done, and there's nothing more that you know what to do. So God says, don't worry about it. I see it. I do great things. I will make my presence known. And so this miracle of 1 Kings 13, 2 is a sign to us that Jeroboam could not have seen in his day, but we see it today that before King Josiah was ever even a thought in anybody's parents' lives, he was to be a king. And he became a king 290 years later. Isn't that an amazing miracle? Are you awake? You get it? It's astounding. Miracle number two, verse three. And then he gave a sign by the same day, a sign. God's giving signs not to Jeroboam as much as he's given it to us, that this is the mighty God who controls things. This is the sign, verse three, which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are in it shall be poured out. This altar, Jeroboam, you're standing in front of, I'm going to split it apart. Jeroboam's thinking, oh boy, what, you know, I don't know about Josiah. You say about Josiah, I'm not sure I get that. That's somebody before I have any knowledge of him. So verse 3, God says, I'm going to split the altar apart. Verse 5. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Within minutes, God says, I'm going to split that altar apart. He's standing there watching this altar, doesn't believe it's going to happen, and God splits it apart. God does a miracle right in front of Jeroboam, and it doesn't change his heart a bit. But there's a third miracle in verse 4. Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. 
but his hand, when he stretched it out, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. And so he stretches out his hand like this, and God does something to the hand that dries up and it no longer exists. He loses his hand. And that was a sign of, of authority against someone, as a king would probably want to execute this man for that. So Jeroboam's hand shrinks up. Then you read in verse 6. Then the king said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God, and notice the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored, restored to him, and it became as it was before. Now I hope somewhere in our hearts we're impressed by the power of God. That sometimes we can't control everything. But in this really hours of time, God gave to Jeroboam three miraculous displays and signs of his power. And although it didn't impact Jeroboam, I hope, I hope somehow it impacts us. That you've got people that you can't control. You've got relationships that are divided. You've got hearts that are fractured. And you think, God, what more can I do? Then God gives us a passage like this that is obscure that a lot of us, I bet, have never even read that before. And it becomes a little nugget that God loves to take those situations and begin to do miracles, begin to display his power, begin to manipulate the circumstances to give that individual an opportunity to have their heart healed and the relationship restored. I'm asking that we would be people of faith that really sees the signs that God gives to us and says, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to trust as you did a miracle for Jeroboam, didn't change his heart, but I'm asking for that sign for my loved one that also needs a changed heart. Ask God for the miracles of Jeroboam in those people's lives, and I'll show you that he does do that. Then we need to live in a healthy fear of discipline from God, and I don't have time to get into this, but God came to these people and he tried to discipline them. To judgment to Jeroboam, God came to him and says uh, this to them, yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all of his heart. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam. There was discipline and judgment that came to Jeroboam. And then for Israel, in 1 Kings 14, 15, and 16, God says, I'm going to bring a powerful nation that's going to come and wipe you out. This is another prophecy. Hundreds of years before Assyria came, in 722 B.C., Assyria came in and wiped out Israel. And God says right here in 1 Kings 14, I'm going to do that. So hundreds of years before that, God brings judgment. And the thing that I want us to be mindful of is this. And this isn't popular. There's not a lot of preachers that like to preach about judgment consequences for sin, God's discipline for rebellion. But God does do that. And part of the storyline that we're going to see of these kings is that God does lower the boom sometimes. And in this case of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, he does that. We need to be mindful that we need to bring people to Jesus, that his reality would be their reality. Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 36 is quoted as saying, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. 
We need to see the reality that there is a choice that we have to make. It's interesting, this last week, I had the privilege to be able to speak at uh, Dave Cowan's memorial service on Friday. And one of the things I love to do at memorial services like that is to let them know that this day will come for them as well. I always like to quote George Bernard Shaw when he said, the statistics on death are phenomenal. One out of every one person is going to die. <laughs> and one of the analogies that Dave is a great coach, mentor to many athletes, some of them were there. And they're in the realm of track, that when you see the finish line, you excel to burst through that finish line. And I said, there is a finish line for all of us. And the question is, how well will we burst through that finish line and who will be waiting for us on the other side? And I quoted from 1 John 5 that he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I asked the question, do you have the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Because he has come to die to pay for your sins, to give you forgiveness. That when the day comes that you die, you can instantly be with God in heaven like Dave Cowan was. And I want that gospel to go out because there is a reality that he who does not have the Son remains under the wrath of God now. It's interesting the comments you get after memorial services like that. As different people see me because I had the bright green shirt on because usually they don't know who I am. But when you wear a bright green fluorescent green shirt, then they, oh, you're the preacher. You, you spoke. And I never know whether to hide or not. And one woman came up to me and said, wow, I've heard pastors sort of dance around the reality of death and Jesus. She says, I'm a believer. I've heard them dance around it, kind of come close to it, but never really lay it on the line like you did. Thank you for making it clear that either you have the Son and have life, or you do not have the Son and you do not have eternal life with God in heaven. Because there is a day when that will make a difference for all of eternity as to whether you believe in Jesus or don't. There are consequences. And God judged Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the nations because they never repented. So we call people to repentance, to be under the hand of God, that his grace would come and backfill that. The last thing I wanted to say is this, that God came to them, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, Rehoboam, going back to Rehoboam, is rebelling against God. So what does God do? God brings the Shishtak, this king of Egypt, in to ravage the land of Judah. And as he comes and attacks the, the kingdom, I'm just going to read verses 7 and 8 of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 12, 7 and 8 is the counterpart to 1 Kings 14. So they run hand in hand. They're parallel track scriptures. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, who was this prophet, they have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some measure of deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on them by means of Shishak, but they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdom of the countries. I love that God brings the nation of Egypt to ravage Rehoboam and his people so that as the scripture says he would humble himself 
One of the things God does is He brings like stressors to Solomon that we would humble ourselves. That when we humble ourselves before Almighty God, He loves to bless there. I invite you into that kind of relationship with Almighty God. That through Jesus Christ, you humble yourselves and say, I don't have what it takes. I've got this division in my own heart. I'm half-heartedly having allegiance to God, but I still want to play the game that the world entices me into. I invite you to have a whole heart. Unify around the Word of God. See the value of the righteous life, the blessing that God wants to and desperately needs to bring to you, that in humility you come before Almighty God. And like Rehoboam, God's blessing comes upon him. Not prosperity, not wealth, not healing, but simply the presence of God to carry you through whatever may happen the next day. That's what God invites us into, to know Jesus, to remove his wrath, and to enter into his blessing, and to live fully for him with a whole heart. We invite you into that. Let me pray. As I pray, I want to pray for our offering and receive it now. It's our opportunity to say, God, yes, I humble myself before you, and I bring who I am and what I have to you at this time. Father God, thank you that you're a mighty God that wants to work in our lives. Father, there's a lot of territory to cover with a Jeroboam and a Rehoboam, and Lord, it's overwhelming. I pray, Lord, that the takeaway is this, that God, you're seeking us as you continue to seek Jeroboam and Rehoboam. You will plead with us as you did with them. And someday, sometimes you will bring harsh circumstances to humble us. And I pray, God, that you would find within us a willing heart to look to you, to know your blessing, to honor your name. And Father, for those of us who have divisions in our world, that your healing power would restore what is broken, unite what is divided, return those who are from you to you, and that God, through the counsel of your word and the counsel of godly leaders, you'd repair whatever is torn apart. God, help us to be those people. That as journey, Ernie Johnson said, that we are known for the love that we express, no matter the division that surrounds us. Help us to be like Jesus. In his name we pray and bring this offering. Amen.